Okay, today we're joined by Anthony Robinson. Uh, Anthony is the director of the College of Earth and Mineral Sciences Geospatial Education Program, and he's also a faculty member um, within that college. And this interview with Anthony rounds out uh, this first unit, which really covers, for me, are the primary folks that I'm working with from the learning design side and in, in doing any kind of learning design work within Penn State. So we've got the learning design organization, which we covered in lesson one, the program planning and management, which is uh, which is really focused on the business side of the operation. And then today in lesson three, we're talking about the academic side of the equation um, and, and the, the needs and the kind of thinking of the leadership on the academic side, like Anthony. Uh, again, this is a pretty higher education-centric conversation, but you can think of these, these people as primary stakeholders in any kind of you know, educational or instructional endeavor. And I think that uh, Anthony is a real smart guy. He has some really interesting background in doing MOOCs. Um, and uh, really being in charge of a program with a very long history. Um, so he's got a lot of sort of depth uh, of doing this, but also involved in some, some pretty cool thing over th things over the years. And I think one thing that you can notice is some of the similarities and concerns and, um, and you know, areas of focus between lesson one, two, and three for the different people that we talk to. So that's a, sort of a good thing, triangulating a common strategy across these three things. Um, but I think that, um, that what, what Anthony has to say is another factor that as you develop your instructional project uh, for this unit, um, that he is bringing to the table certain constraints um, and, and sort of priorities that you should be considering. Uh, it's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So I'm joined here today with Anthony Robinson. Uh, thanks for your time today, Anthony. Yep. Um, I'm not going to try to remember your title, so why don't we get started by telling us what your role at Penn State is. Sure. So uh, I'm Anthony Robinson. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography. And um, I direct our online geospatial education programs, so a whole suite of courses and credentials for graduate students uh, mm -hmm. through World Campus. Cool. And the reason that we're talking today, and sort of the generally speaking, the, the goal for the course um, is to provide a lot of different perspectives on how online learning is done. So mm -hmm. um, we've talked to instructional designers, obviously, um, but and also talking to the program planning and management people about sort of the business of the of the online learning yeah. sort of development process and and uh, accessibility folks and <laughs> and uh, and some of the different people who run some of the um, professional organizations. So trying to get that that broad perspective, just so you understand sort of um, why we're talking today, and hopefully you can right. give us an interesting perspective um, from the for, from the academic side about what some of your goals yeah. and interests are in terms of uh, of. Uh, Growing academic, uh, growing academic programs, managing academic programs. Um, so, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the academic programs that you oversee? Sure. Um, and and you know w within those programs, what are the what are the typical sort of knowledge knowledge and skills that you want your students to be learning? Yeah. Um, so we offer, I think at this point, 
five certificate programs, so graduate certificate programs, uh, different different flavors of geospatial science technology, anything, anything basically associated with location embedded data. So um, if you think about the data science era that we're in right now, almost everything that we measure or interact with has some location component. So our, uh, we have five different certificate programs. We have a master's degree as well, a few different options within some of those things uh, for customization. And then we support people to take individual classes uh, for professional development. So we try to hit a pretty broad range of possibilities. Mm. Um, and we're targeting uh, people that are in the workforce who already have a bachelor's degree with these programs. So these are folks that are not likely to ever come to campus um, to come back to school, right? They're mid-career, um, working full-time, and many are trying to refresh their skills or make a career transition, and we're trying to satisfy those needs. Okay, so so they're not they're not just starting to think about think about careers or trying to, to take the next step. Is that pretty yeah. common in the online programs that you sort of interact with for, for World Campus? Are they particularly like adult learners that are? I I get the strong school? impression that at Penn State, that's one of our biggest online audiences. I'm thinking here about people that are only engaging us through World Campus. Um, not necessarily students and residents who are taking online classes, which is kind of a different thing. Um, but if we think about how we grow the university and how we have bigger reach, um, that's the that's the possible audience that we can serve. And it's pretty exciting because we're talking about, in many cases, alumni or people from other universities who have moved on and are out in the workforce and need to come back to school in some form and realistically are not going to leave their jobs and livelihoods and families uh, to come back to a physical on-campus presence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really interesting opportunity to engage with a different, you know, I don't like the sort of traditional, non-traditional student breakdown, but with a non-traditional student. <laughs> um, and that's where I see a lot of potential for us to grow as a university in the future. Um, it's not going to be through building very expensive dorms for 19-year-olds. Right. Um, it's going to be through reaching people through more, you know, technological means at a distance. Um, we can scale, you know, access accordingly. So you think that the students that are taking the, your programs are, without online learning, they probably wouldn't have had this opportunity in terms of where they are in their lives? Yeah, I, th I think some of our students may have access locally to um professional programs that are built for adult learners, uh, people that live in the DC area, for example, in New York City, big cities like that. But even folks that do have physical access to something like that, you still need to have the time uh, to dedicate to things like uh, along those lines. And many like sort of evening professional programs don't work at all for someone in a contemporary career mm -hmm. where you're traveling, where your hours are awkward. There's like, there's no good time, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, one thing that's kind of interesting along those lines is the number of students we've actually had who work at Penn State uh, who are taking our program online, <laughs> presumably have really good, you know, unparalleled physical access to to um, higher education, you know, tuition discounts, you name it, but like still choose to do it at a distance because that's really the only practical means for them to do it in a lot in accordance with their job and family obligations. How long has the, has the program been around? We're celebrating our 20th year this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we're one of the oldest programs at World Campus. Uh, I'm sure of that. I don't remember the, our counterpart um, 
earliest ones, but uh, I know we were in that that very first tranche before there was really a low campus. And um, yeah, it started with a single certificate program that was not for credit. It was a CEU granting program. Uh, it eventually came, became a for credit. Uh, this was just a single certificate in geographic information systems. And uh, around 2000, early 2000s, we launched our master's in GIS, complemented that, and then those things feed each other very nicely when you have a certificate program and a master's program, and subsequently have added lots of new topics through new certificates, options, and a master's degree. Um, so presumably the types of jobs in the field have evolved over time. So a program that's 20 years old probably has been reinvented <laughs> yeah. um, a bunch of times. Can you talk about sort of what you do to monitor the field and adapt the program to changing needs? Yeah, a, a big part of my job is to try to see that happening, anticipate it, um, and act before it catches us. And a lot of our competitors um, tend to look a little bit more backward about what has happened and to, to adapt to that. And that's a common academic program thing is like, you know, three years ago, topic X was really important, so let's build a degree around it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's harder to foresee what's gonna happen next. I don't pretend to be amazing at that, but I spend a lot of time uh, trying to stay current with what's happening in the industry. So, I mean, a big part of that for me is uh, going to professional meetings, understanding what professionals are doing with geospatial data and data science and trying to bring that back into, okay, how do we plan around what comes next for our students? There's a certain degree too of, of necessity, by necessity, uh, the technology that we teach with changes constantly. So um, you can look at something like drones, for example, where there was no possibility of buying your own little drone that did amazing stuff <laughs> with GPS and, and cameras and whatnot, even, you know, seven years ago. Yeah. Now it's so, $99 at Walmart. And now it's like trivially easy. Yeah. Um, so that's another, you know, a new challenge in some ways. There's new sources from um, satellites, uh, new social media data sets, things like that that just didn't exist um, when we were founded. So um, if we're doing even, even just staying ahead of that, just the ongoing change is challenging, but anticipating what comes next is a big part of like what, in my opinion, what a lead faculty member is supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of in the ecosystem of learning design, academic unit, operations, you know, I see my role as the academic lead at, in large part to help identify what things need to change, um, anticipate that, mm -hmm. look for trends in the industry and science, right? So I'm supposed to bridge those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and put us in a trajectory that goes that way. And, and, and you mentioned a couple of these different roles, but then integrate all those different people, make sure that they're pointing in all the right directions to meet your strategic sort of Yeah, plans. I mean, right, the, the other part of that ecosystem, that's, I mean, there's a lot of bit, bits and pieces of it, but um, a huge part of that too is the sustainability of the program to operate. So there is a, this is, there is a business model to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's another huge component of this. Like if we don't continue growing or, or sustain at a current rate, then uh, the finances of the whole system become threatened as well. So there's an imperative on us to constantly stay relevant. Um, we also have a lot of new competitors right. over the years. So when we started, we were the only thing anywhere. And now we probably, we have probably 25 or so credible reasonably good quality or better um, programs that are our, our peers yeah. at this stage. So that means we have to be 
really good. <laughs> so, so I want to dig in at some, in a minute to the sort of specifics about how learning design works in your yeah. context. But, uh, but I think that tension that you're talking about is really interesting. The tension between the need to innovate and grow, but then also we all have, um, you know, increasingly tight budgets, <laughs> bills to pay, more competition. So there's that tension. Yeah. How do you balance those two things in your mind as you're making decisions about that? Well, um, I mean, I, I tried as hard as I can to err on the side of what I think will benefit our students. Mm -hmm. And so what, what will actually help them um, to become the types of alumni that we think that they have the potential to be. Um, that tends to help everything else. You know, having really good outcomes um, can can ameliorate a lot of other problems. Mm -hmm. um, notwithstanding that, there is definitely a business model at play and inside the university, it's an incredibly complicated fight over resources. Um, and it's not always um, deeply logical in its structure. It's usually, it's usually legacy oriented and it's not necessarily forward looking. And I say that out of an interest um, in working together to not have it be that way in the future. Uh, a big thing that kind of makes, you know, one of the biggest questions you get from prospective students is like, is this the real Penn State? Is there anything, is it gonna say like, I have an online master's degree or something like that? And the answer of course is yes, this is, the, we really are Penn State. <laughs> yeah, that's your my, degree says that's, Penn that's State. That's my, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my probably not gonna be successful uh, marketing slogan for rural campus is we really are Penn State. Um, just based, that's the number one question we get from prospects. And I am able to tell students, you know, yeah, I'm Penn State faculty. My colleagues are all faculty here. We propose programs and courses through the exact same mechanisms for quality control um, through the Senate as any resident experience. They are not distinguished by type. Um, and so that's, that's a, challenging thing for us internally because it's sometimes those things they take forever you know they move at the pace of resident education which is half as fast as we need to be mm -hmm. um but the plus of that is that we're able to say unequivocally like yeah this is not some parallel enterprise this is not like a second tier of penn state this really is penn state mm -hmm. and a lot of our big peers around the higher education industry are not able to say that necessarily mm -hmm. they have a lot of relationships with private companies that effectively offer most of their stuff and or they have like a, you know, a different name for the campus in which you graduate from that isn't uh, the main thing. Yeah, there's a there's a, a concept that I was introduced to OPM. So, that, you know, just essentially, which stands for other people's money. So just essentially paying for some yep. other company to build your online programs for you. And for those who are late to the game. That's, I mean, how else do you get an edge up quickly? I, I don't. It's not surprising at all. Yeah, if, if Pearson's willing to help you crank out, you know, the virtual version of your campus with, and also essentially no skin in the game since they'll front, they'll fund it in exchange for a big revenue share, then you can see why the sort of neoliberal force of that uh, is very attractive to late entrants. There are quite a few big schools that we're, you know, big fans of otherwise that have almost no play in this space yet, kind of surprisingly, right? right. Um, even within the Big Ten, there are a couple that are like, why do they not have huge programs yet? Yeah, and there's a huge ethical question of the extent to which you let your students know that you're not you're getting a Pearson degree. Just Absolutely. so you're clear, when you come to 
whatever university. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I say it kind of tongue in cheek that we really are Penn State, but I do try to drive that home. And I talk to prospective students about us, one of our biggest competitors. Um, if you contact them through their website, you're not contacting them. You're contacting Pearson. Mm-hmm. You're contacting a marketing person who's designed to get you as a lead. Mm-hmm. If you contact us, you get someone at Penn State. You get somebody here in Outreach Building or you get us in Geography. Um, you get to us in Geography quickly no matter what. We don't have... There's no profit motive, you know what I mean? We're not part of that. And I like being able to say I work in a place like that where we we do value that that ecosystem is as painful as it might be sometimes to mm-hmm. craft our own policy and other things like that. At least it's not uh, you know, we're not beholden to a consulting firm essentially to deliver what what should be very much within the wheelhouse of a of a top tier university. Mm-hmm. So across the landscape of online learning, at, even just within the United States, there's many different models for how this is being done right now. And, and, and probably while Penn State is mature in this space, um, there's still a lot of evolution yeah. in the field to be done. Yeah. Um, I thought maybe we could dig in because the, the students taking this course are in the Learning Design and Technology program. Yep. And potentially going to be learning designers, um, and so they probably want to understand. And I think it's it's necessary, and I think you would agree with this, to be successful as a learning designer. It's essential to understand all these different aspects of how online learning is done sure. and know how to work successfully with somebody like yourself. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, um, what is what, what is your philosophy about and your approach to working with a learning designer? And what do you think um, a situation is that's most successful? Yeah. Somebody like that. So, uh, I mean, it starts with having a policy. It's not a written policy, but it's a, it's a practice um, that all of the classes that we develop for like the programs that I oversee and all the ones in our college, Earth Mineral Sciences, are the product of a relationship between a faculty member and a learning designer. So we don't we don't support the development of class that isn't a collaboration like that, and that's a unique thing. Um, I, I would certainly within geography programs like mine, um, but not many universities have that kind of like uh, you know collaboration built into the model, mm-hmm. um, and it's one of the first questions I ask other places I go about like well who's helping design these courses like design the classes. And I usually get some technical answer about there's an IT person that helps me do stuff on Canvas or whatever. I'm like, no, I'm talking about like a learning designer, someone who understands pedagogical approaches and how technology facilitates learning. And I usually get a lot of blank stares and question marks and "Eh, I don't know what's going on with that. And then I tell them, do you guys have a college of education? You guys teach education majors? And since that's one of the most common things in the world, uh, invariably they do. And I'm like, okay, go talk to them. <laughs> yeah. So the student taking this class, like, yeah, I'm looking to, we try to hire folks like that uh, all the time, right? In either Moral Campus or the Dutton Institute. And I think the things that make that relationship work, it starts with an assumption that we will have that relationship. So you're, no one's going to build a class without that happening. They might. And yeah. that, that comes from leadership angle of like, I'm not comfortable having a course built that isn't the product of that kind of relationship. Sure. And you mentioned Dutton Institute, so maybe we should expand yeah. on that. I, I work at World Campus, so I oversee a learning design unit mm-hmm. that does design a certain way. Can you talk about the structure of Dutton and how yeah. you fit into it? 
So some colleges at Penn State have their own learning design units, and the Earth Mineral Sciences College is one of those, and we have the Dutton E-Education Institute. And so all of the programs in the Earth and Mineral Sciences, the geography ones included, kind of fall under that umbrella. And in the Institute, we then design, uh, develop, and deliver those online programs. Um, and so I'm kind of, I bridge between the Department of Geography and the Dutton Institute and EMS in various ways. Um, also, obviously, I, I interact with a lot of people here at World Campus. Um, and our, our, we have a group of designers, a team of designers in EMS then, who get to learn, you know, a, a strength of that model is that they, since they're sort of local to our college, get to learn a lot more about the topics that we teach in the college. And so an advantage, I think, uh, for any designer is to have the ability to dive into a topic area that you're trying to facilitate the teaching of um, and to be able to anticipate some of the things that might be helpful for that. That's pretty hard to do. Um, it doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't always work for all learning design units. Uh, so in your case, you have an impossible <laughs> broad swath of all possible things that might come across. Whereas in EMS, we can kind of be like, oh, sure. you're going to be doing something with material science or geoscience or geography, meteorology. There, there's a relationship there mm -hmm. thematically that a designer working across classes of those things starts to become an earth scientist, sure. right? Which is great. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that can help a lot to have um, the ability for, for a designer to, to specialize in some uh, topical area or, or at least the curiosity to try. And honestly, that would be the thing I would advise is to be curious, to dive into something. Um, if you're working with someone who teaches about map design, which is a topic that I teach, you know, try reading a little bit about cartography. Mm -hmm. You're not going to hurt the feelings of a professor in some area if you say, hey, I think you guys do a lot of map critique, right? Here's an interesting way to do critique. That's exactly what, what we want. Mm -hmm. um, and 99% of our faculty have never learned anything about teaching before. So one of the other podcasts that that I did for the class, I was talking to an instructional designer and we talked about the relationship between faculty and the learning designer. Mm -hmm. um, and that was when learning design, when online learning started, and this is evidenced by the fact that the job profile of instructional designers in the IT family, yeah. it was viewed as essentially people who put up websites for faculty that were starting to teach online. Right. And the field has changed quite a bit to where they're often people with PhDs mm -hmm. um, in education and bringing a certain amount of, a, a large degree of skill to what they're doing. Um, and, and plus they're, they're in, in, like, as you said, they're specializing in the, in the field oftentimes in, in, what, in the, which they're working. Could you take us through some of the conversations that you have with a learning designer? Mm -hmm. You know, what What does, you, you're preparing to design a new class or I guess in the case, as we said, maybe revising a class and yeah. and what does that conversation look like and what does that negotiation between you and that person look like so that... So a lot of that is, um, you know, there's there's a couple of different levels of this. So, so one of them is, and my role as a kind of academic program manager, um, I'm working closely with my colleague who directs learning design for the Institute, Stevie Rocco. So Stevie and I will meet about sort of the overall scope of a project. You know, how big is this? Is this a full revision? Is this a whole completely new course? Is this a new person who we've never worked with before? You know, there's a certain amount of onboarding we do with new faculty, for example. Um, we try then to manage um, 
across the workloads of our faculty and designers to make sure that we're pairing people up, we're sort of mixing it up periodically so you're not always working with the same designer. And then we sort of set in motion um, a course blueprinting plan and, and a timeline for deliverables that are shared between the faculty member and learning designer. And then we let them, we, we assume and expect them to meet with each other, to stay in contact frequently, and we're only checking in kind of periodically as that project goes on. Um, so there's sort of a project management angle to this uh, from the program level view where I'm not going to be at every meeting about the ongoing course prep of something. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to micromanage it like that. Um, there's a certain, you know, we, we're what we're trying to create is conditions in which a faculty member and a designer can develop a rapport and take it way beyond where Stevie and I might think it can go, <laughs> you know, just by making assumptions about five minutes, you know, of, of worth of strategizing. So, so there's, there's kind of a couple different levels there of like interaction where mine is kind of at the higher level uh, to set things in motion, to allocate resources, to decide for a given year, maybe these are the three or four classes we're going to redesign. These are the two new ones we're going to propose. That's about what I can afford, you know, <laughs> and then Stevie's also doing that same thing to allocate her team. You know, what are their, what's their ecosystem of projects look like? How do mine fit into that? What's the timing going to be like? Um, often that's a negotiation that's really important to deal with. And we have to get everybody kind of synced. So designer has a workload. Faculty members have crazy workloads. Stevie and I have stuff. And also, I always want something immediately. Mm -hmm. Right? So I'm not doing my job if I'm not expecting it to be done right away. <laughs> you know, we can't, I don't want to wait a year for anything if I can help it. Uh, mm -hmm. because I, to me, that's part of us being competitive is being right. faster than the expected mm -hmm. um, to offer a new topic because it's relevant right now. Yeah. And so I'll apply a lot of pressure in those ways, but we also have to come to agreement, obviously, about not everything can happen all at once. Yeah, and that's, that's a really good point. Something that I wanted to get at was that a, a sort of a theme throughout this class is as you are taking this class and you're learning about all the different facets of how online learning is done, um, as a learning designer, you come in with certain pedagogical ideas and you might be interested in innovation and bringing new technologies to provide cool, engaging experiences for students. Um, but then you quickly run against the realities of, of timelines and budgets. Execution, and, yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, if you, you face that where you're having conversations with, with either Stevie as the director of the unit or her or designers mm -hmm. about... And uh, the faculty as well are going to come in with certain innovative ideas about how they want to teach a particular class. Or bad ideas. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Or, and these are all things that that you, yeah. it's ultimately. And we have to say, like, we've done that before and it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like there's a lot of, from your standpoint, shaping of the pedagogy? Not You're not micromanaging the process, but mm -hmm. you are putting constraints and having to communicate those things. And there's a, a little bit of back and forth, I assume. Yeah. I mean, uh one of the good parts about running a graduate program is that I don't feel particularly wedded to any one model for how a class is designed. So often a lot of new faculty members, people that we haven't worked with before, may sort of desire a, you know, some kind of common framework, like this is how a class looks. And I really try to disabuse people of that and focus on, um, you know, no, these are, I, I want you to think about what you're teaching and 
let's let it be expressive of that topic <laughs> and and that type of assessment. So teaching math design is completely different than teaching about programming, for example. They're like on almost opposite ends of the spectrum. Some of our courses are about really reading and writing and communication just at a graduate level. And they kind of are these core master's classes that where we have to do, we have to get into the weeds about what does an abstract look like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so those are really different purposes for class courses. And some are much more tech, technology heavy. So there's more lab components. So I try not to, to think, to allow people to think too much about, get, uh, they're not gonna get a box for me to put stuff in. But there is definitely, um, there are definitely times where we come into situations where, yeah, the enemy uh, of getting something done is trying to make it perfect. Um, and I, I always kind of would rather we start doing something, to start operating, because uh, I know just from my own teaching experience how much I learned from the act of teaching. Mm -hmm. And the same is true, I know, with our designers, like as we finally launch a course, right, they do a couple things they are like, okay. So it turns out VoiceThread kind of sucked when we had 30 people try to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's not going to work for the next offering. In fact, it's not going to work for the next lesson. Yeah. So let's let's go. And we might have hemmed and hawed about that for a year, you know. And so I, I try to keep that perspective in mind. Like the, one of the few advantages of being older and wiser in that regard is just knowing when something is becoming a boondoggle mm -hmm. and saying, okay, let's just have a new course. Do those you know, things make, let's just do it. Yeah. Do those um, things make people gun shy about integrating new technologies or, or is there just so much passion about merging? You know, there's there's a lot of um, there's inertia of all different kinds. Mm -hmm. So I feel like some of our colleagues have uh, inertia that draws them to new things constantly. And there are some colleagues who have inertia, which keeps them never wavering from their same track of uh, we have a project and this is how the project works forever mm -hmm. and i i get you know i feel like one of my roles is to is to be able to see that in either extreme and say okay that's wonderful i'd like you to why don't you do that the next time it's offered let's just stick with this particular method for now and in other cases um to be pretty blunt and say you know if you don't delete your class and start over i'll do it for you <laughs> you know i feel like yeah. uh faculty hanging on to old content is is one of the more difficult aspects of this where people get really passionate about like this is but this is the best way to explain this concept I'm like yeah that explanation is you know could be driving a car by now it's how old it is so and that's there's lots of stuff we teach that doesn't change over time there are core concepts but the situations in which we describe them the context for those things those do change the and graphics the students change too. the students change and their approach to things changes and i'd like to see more humor in our classes mm -hmm. and a little bit less, you know, feeling like textbook. Um, I think I feel like we need to compete by being more personal. Mm -hmm. And we do that with all these other aspects of our programs. And sometimes it's the content where I feel like, I'd like to see your voice in this more. You know, I'd like to see you come out in that. Um, that's something I experienced myself in teaching a MOOC, uh, was just how people responded to that, the, the idea that it wasn't a neutral saccharine boring thing it wasn't like the weather channel version of a class it was like a crazy guy in his basement yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and some people really didn't they were uncomfortable by that and they said as much like i've never you know heard a professor say something like that and i'm confused <laughs> in my country that doesn't work that way and i'm like well yeah that's but if you took a class of me that's what you get yeah um yeah. and i think our students want something that's not hyper 
uh, generalized or saccharine. I think they want authentic experiences. And that's often the missing ingredient bridging the gap between sort of a resident experience and an online experience is the sort of X factor of like, right. but but everybody remembers the personality of the person that they, mm-hmm. a great professor that they had or a bad one, right? Yeah. <laughs> they, they remember the qualitative attributes. And so I'd like, I'm always kind of looking for opportunities or wherever we can make that a bigger focus, maybe not even the content mm-hmm. per se, but how it's expressed. Um, I want that to come out more often than anything. That whole holistic experience that the yeah. students are having. So you mentioned MOOCs. I think that's a good segue to, to a quick conversation about um, in a, in a innovation and yeah. what you think is the mo- are some of the when the stars align and the budgets work out and the <laughs> learning designer and the and subject matter experts sort of are all in sync and, and we're doing and not just at Penn State but um, but anywhere in your field where you're seeing online learning being done yeah. well what are the coolest things that are happening and I and I you know we can laugh because MOOCs are sort of you know the, we're the big now. thing passe but but the way that you I still think that the way that you did, you approached your MOOC was unique and the, the I don't know how many, 30,000 students or something like that? Well, the first time was about, it was 49,000, it's close to 50,000. So far- Sorry, I didn't mean to insult you by almost saying So that. That's okay, it's still a crazy number. And so far, it's like to date, about 130,000 people have, have signed up for the class. And, and I, it, always, it always amazed me- It's a ridiculous like, scale. Yeah. And it always amazed me the extent to which you engaged that many students. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that, it, one could easily retreat to just here's the course. I'm, that's an yeah. enormous amount of students. I'm just going to back away and let the thing happen. But yeah, that was. A, I mean, I, that, I think that's one of the most exciting things I'll probably have ever had the chance to work on here at Penn State because it was such a new mechanism at the time, and it was cool to be in a space where we didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look forward to more things like that where we're a little bit going out on a limb and not sure yeah. what the benefit's going to be. Right? That was the big question then. Like, well, how are we going to get paid? <laughs> you know, how are we going to get, well, I mean, I had online programs that we recruited for that we had some of the best years ever in the wake of that because it was basically just a big advertisement, you know. Mm-hmm. It, formed, it functioned as a thing of that. It yeah. wasn't obviously explicitly the purpose of the class, but yeah. uh, that was cool. I think that teaching at scale will come back again is another big challenge because the uh, for-profit platforms and even the nonprofit ones gave up on that. They sort of retreated to micro-credentialing and paywalls and stuff like that, and the free part went away. So now we're just, we've taken away the M and the O parts of MOOC, and now we're back to OC, yeah. online classes. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'd like the O and the M to come back into, into fashion again. I still think tackling scale is really exciting. I'm a geographer, so of course I think that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing, I've been focusing a lot in the wake of that on um, learner analytics, and in particular, I'm excited about spatial dimensions of that, of course, because I'm a location person. Like, where does learning take place? Um, we can know a lot more about that now than we ever could before. And in a lot of cases, also, it force, we need to engage with what that means in terms of privacy uh, for our students, uh, for our faculty. <laughs> um, and how we negotiate those boundaries is totally left to be figured out. So I, I would like to work on that problem as well as the actual analytical dimension of understanding even generally right like this week's finals week at Penn State where are the spaces what are the types of spaces on campus that studying really takes place in like for real mm-hmm. we have the ability to know that now which is terrifying <laughs> but and so we need to be extremely careful about how we enact with that interact with that but 
Um, we already are also well aware of vendors trying to sell us stuff to study the behaviors of our students through their digital footprint. And I haven't seen a demonstration yet of how that interacts with location, but it will. Mm-hmm. It will happen. Mm-hmm. I think they just don't know yet how to leverage it. It's right there in IP addresses. Yeah. Um, so so we've got students that are coming from all, all over the world. And yeah. in the MOOCs especially, yeah. I remember seeing some of your maps. Where so you what's, students- the, what's the global footprint look like? I mean, we looked at patterns of, for example, engagement with discussion forums. Mm-hmm. It is not universal around the world. It's like extremely different in certain parts of the world and probably has to do with... Uh, language issues, uh, also cultural norms of education. Like, I don't speak up in class in my country. That's not what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had that direct feedback from some students, but we also have evidence now. We can look at it and say, yeah, these places are way different than others. Um, we identified a lot of uh, gender-related diversity issues through that, too. Like, why was this class attracting even more males than females than a traditional most MOOCs do? Uh, and where was that true? So, because it's not universal. So every time someone quotes like a global stat, I just immediately require breaking it down. <laughs> it's like, no, it can't be everywhere, right? We had the United Kingdom had a lot more women than men. What was going on with that? Yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of geography teachers and teaching is tends, tends to be a highly gendered uh, subject in the UK. And geography teachers took this class. Whereas in South Asia, it was almost all guys. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to work on those things, like to identify them and say, cool, let's try to like intervene. Let's try to make a dent in that yeah. how would we recruit more women from south asia to take a class like this and in my own work around learning analytics uh one of the things that because there's when you get access to the data that underlies any of these systems it's sort of especially if you are geeky like i like <laughs> me i suspect you are yeah. that that you it generates a thousand questions and you don't have time to pursue all those questions yeah. so we we try to really be Target. have a hypothesis and and only pursue pursue questions that are actionable yeah so i assume that you know particularly from the location standpoint bringing this back to learning design is sort yeah. of how does how does providing insight on those questions make you smarter about the way that you design right support better teaching courses? yeah yeah so knowing something about um even the types of locations, if not the specific locations in which our adult learners are free, most frequently engaging with our class content and our professional programs, I'd love to have that knowledge. I'd like to know where and when this stuff is taking place. We have kind of anecdotal information about that. We know some people do it at work, some people do it after work, some people only engage on certain days of the week, but you'd be able to identify these patterns of engagement and to be able to say, okay, maybe this particular structure for a group project is not going to fit well with that mm-hmm. mode. Um, that would be awesome, right? I think we could get better and more tailored and it would still be, it would, we'd be able to leverage the expertise of our designers better too if we are able to give some information and say like, well, here's, here's how the class behaves uh, when they're working on things. Here's how our cohort operates um, and how that's characterized in terms of the space and time is also crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that like simple things, like even having weekly assignments that are due on Wednesdays. Like, why do we do that? I get, that's one of the most frequent questions I get when I go to another university. They're like, well, how much? It's not just like a Saturday or Sunday. Because then you obviate part of the weekend. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so if you have a deadline on Wednesday, it means you have at least one whole weekend before the deadline, mm-hmm. which if you're working full time makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. If I make the deadline on a Saturday, that's like, that means you have half the weekend to work on. Like some of our people cannot do it until the weekend. So it's like some kind of a practice we've learned over time to do that. 
It's a little thing that makes a huge difference. Um, but we don't have a lot of evidence about tweaks to that, right? Like what would happen if we changed it? Are there other things that we might do with time zones and space, you know, to tier deadlines accordingly to where someone is locally? That's an interesting kind of approach. We have people all around the world. So it's like <laughs> uh, just getting people to coordinate to work together when there are synchronous events, because that does happen from time to time. Yeah. And, um, and even answering, asking the right questions is hard, but yeah. the answers are often non-obvious and you need something like digging into data and looking at location. Yeah. And thinking about, you know, okay, even if I had, right, even if I have an IP address, there's a lot of uncertainty in a lot of these things. Um, what does that mean? Um, you know, that could be somebody's on a VPN, and so it looks like they're in Romania, but they're actually here. Mm -hmm. um, we might be able to know if that's a mobile user versus not. So I think that's the space I'm really interested in understanding better is, like, how do we really do this via mobile devices? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of our sites and things like that are compatible, but, I mean, I'm not sure that we know how to do it. Yeah. How learning takes place right. on a mobile device, not just content delivery, which is the first and more obvious problem. And the second one is a lot harder, I think, yeah. and we need to actually kind of make a dent in that. Well, the whole idea of doing a podcast in this course is sort of an experiment for me. And it's not the first time people have done this, but I wonder, you know, my assumption, my hope is that, and I don't know the people that are listening to this, um, that they are professionals, they have jobs, or they might be full-time graduate students, but yeah. lives you know, does the ability to listen to a podcast style content as you're walking around campus or driving to your job does or at work, lunch, yeah. um, does that improve, improve the experience? So, yeah. And you think that even podcasts have been around for a long time, but you would think somebody, somebody's answered the question of, of whether mm -hmm. any particular strategy like this is more effective, but there's so many unknowns. It's yeah. a, it's a good example of uh, possible research that we can do too. And I mean that the, the research mission of the university at a place like Penn State cannot be overstated. You know, that's the, the currency of, of this place in a lot of ways. And the, the exciting opportunity, in my opinion, is that we can kind of achieve a lot of these goals simultaneously, like expanding our audience, um, offering relevant, good career relevant stuff, people who need it. And we can study problems like that while we're doing that mm -hmm. and publish on them and We've had some cool collaborations in the past in our programs between geographers and learning designers. We've published things in both sort of geography outlets as well as education outlets, and that's really cool. Um, I'd love to have more of that. Like if I had, if I could snap my fingers and make something happen, that would be one of the things I'd really want to yeah. to be more possible, more funding to support expeditions and some of this work and trying things and seeing what happens with it. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I mentioned earlier the sort of evolution of the learning design profession starting from its its meager beginnings as glorified web developers right. to being pedagogy experts and partners with both faculty. And I think that a natural evolution is exactly what you're saying as a learning designer, as a researcher, a research partner with faculty. Yeah. And I would encourage everybody who ends up being a designer to not be shy along those lines. It may not be obvious to the faculty you're working with that the intersection of their problem domain and your problem domain is research worthy. Mm -hmm. So jump on it. Yeah. Um, intersectional research is where it's at. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything right now. There are very few islands, right? There are almost no people left who do science by themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and 
there's a lot of potential at these interesting intersections of like distance learning, um, teaching a certain topic, uh, communicating complex things via distance, you know, uh, that's, that's possible. And designers are going to often understand where the pedagogical gaps exist much better than their faculty, uh, sort of topic faculty uh, counterparts. And so don't be shy with that. I mean, tell them like, yeah, we could publish this if we send it to this or that you may have a totally different kind of relationship at that point with a faculty member. Um, and one that really like the most productive ones that we've seen long term are those where that's kind of had the chance to develop. Everybody kind of wins in that scenario. So this is a good segue to, to sort of my, my parting question, which mm -hmm. is, do you have any advice for learning designers who are starting in this field, things that they should be thinking about at this point to be successful? Yeah, so um, I think certainly thinking about look for opportunities to create uh, and execute on new research as part of the mission of designing a class and teaching. Um, in addition to that, I think uh, try not to be shy about thinking ahead about a new method of engagement for an existing course. So I think designing, we kind of fixate a lot on designing new things. We were talking about this before we officially began, but um, one of the big challenges that I have is just like maintaining and sustaining and repopulating, re revising uh, existing courses and curricula. I mean, how, how do we do that? We don't have great models for that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So that's a space for possible innovation. Um, I would say if you're a new designer and you're working with a team, and you don't have a strategy for like revisions and sort of ongoing work uh, that you should try to advocate for and work toward that uh, because it's really very tempting and much more common to kind of focus on the new shiny thought stuff and just be like, well, that class has just been taught forever and everybody's fine. Mm -hmm. There's a good chance it's not fine. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's much harder and less, you know, it's less sexy to work on the kind of older stuff that we've already worked on and finished years ago. Um, but it's really important, I think, um, to, to not kind of let off the gas on any of this stuff um, and to sort of insist on having a strategy for that as well as designing a new course. Like, how are you going to revise things? Um, and then to not, to not be afraid in revision to think about completely getting rid of the old thing. So some of our most successful revisions have been ones where we actually just tried to pretend like we had never taught this class before, which is very difficult for both faculty and designers to wrap their heads around sometimes that, that their baby that might have worked really well for a long time, you know, we kind of need like the new album, right? Yeah. <laughs> we need to go on tour. We're not going to play the old songs again. And that's a really hard, yeah. that can be a pretty hard thing to, to approach. Kind of sounds cathartic to me personally but that's I, yeah <laughs> I'm a I'm a big fan of ripping off the band-aid so yeah. a lot of times the conversations I have to facilitate are ones where I, I have to be the one that says that yeah. like no I'm telling you I really think you should just delete the entire class <laughs> just start over mm -hmm. like you wouldn't build it like that today yeah so might, so might why just release yourself from it you know like uh, yeah the, there's literally nobody that's going to be like well where did the old class go <laughs> you know what I mean? No one has ever emailed me to ask that. <laughs> right? I mean, that's a pretty pretty good way to look at it. It's like, did you have anybody that wondered where the old class went? I like the one that was designed 20 years ago. Yeah, so no, I mean, we really don't. We really don't have that. Like sometimes there's a belief that there's this like going to be this criticism. Like if we move to a new piece of technology or we, 
yeah, completely change an assignment that someone's going to hearken back to the previous thing. I'm like, that just doesn't exist. Hasn't happened. So I think that's a good place to stop. I appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks. It was wonderful talking to you.